the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today we're talking with Squadron Leader Louise Burr, who is an airfield engineer. Squadron Leader Burr joined the Royal Australian Army in 1998 as an Australian Defence Force Academy cadet. After two years, she transferred to the Air Force and graduated with a Bachelor of Civil Engineering, with honours, I hasten to add, in 2001. And from there, she had quite an exciting life. She served in a range of combat support airfield engineering roles. Her postings have included roles with Airborne Early Warning and Control Systems Project Officer and Airworthiness Coordination and Policy Agency. Louise enjoyed a sabbatical in 2007-08 with the Canadian Armed Forces at Cold Lake Air Force Base in northern Alberta. During August to November 2018, Louise took acting wing commander rank and commenced a Middle East deployment as Chief Engineer Headquarters Joint Task Force on Operation Accordion. Louise is now posted to strike a joint strike fighter branch as the facilities project manager responsible for a $1.5 billion acquisition budget. The project includes new facilities for numbers 375 and 77 squadron, two operational conversion unit and runway extensions and aircraft restore systems. Louise is married to Grant Burr, a fellow RAAF officer, and they have three school-aged children, Kyle, Logan and Lara. She has many interests such as travelling, baking, yoga, teaching the children to be good humans and managing renovations on their heritage home. Now, you joined the Army in 1998. Now, that's, now you're in the Air Force. Why did you join the Army? I grew up in a small country town in um, central west New South Wales called Parks and we didn't have much of a military presence there but my father was army reserves and he always uh, went away on his two-week camps each year and came back and always spoke about how much he thoroughly enjoyed it. And when I reached the end of high school, I really didn't have much of an idea until about grade 11 with what I wanted to do with my life. But I did have an identical twin sister. Um, I still do. (laughs) And uh, we were identical in many ways, not just in appearance, but also in what we enjoyed doing and our grades in school and our friendship circles. And I just felt in year 11, I needed to make a really big change and just um, individualize myself. So I sought out any sort of adventurous um, kind of future future in my path that I could. And I applied for a few things out of school, but was lucky enough to be awarded a scholarship to ADFA as an army cadet. Mm. Um, at that stage, I wasn't even really sure about what the Navy and the Air Force were. And when I turned up to ADFA, I leaned into the girl that would become my best friend and asked her why was she in a blue uniform. I really was very, very green and unworldly at that stage. Whilst you were in the army, you were there for what, for two years? Yes, I was, yes. Um, Going through your thought processes in that two years, was 
have I done the right thing or should I do something else? I mean, what, what were yeah. you feeling? Because eventually you do change. Yes, I did. I, I'll admit uh, my first two years in the army was full of a lot of doubt, um, a lot of phone calls home saying I think I'm, I'm done. It, it wasn't really the right fit for me. Um, the army in the late 90s was a diff- very different place to what I assume it would be now. Mm. Um, I really um, I enjoyed it but I didn't feel like it was my calling. Uh, but at that stage, for the first two years, a transfer to the Air Force was not even on the cards. Um, we had no Army civil engineers, which is the degree I was studying. Yes, we had whilst no- you were in the Army. Yes, so I was studying that while I was in the Army, but at that point the Air Force wasn't accepting any um, Air Force civil engineers because they were undergoing a major transition from the old uh facilities kind of role into the airfield engineering role that we're doing now. So they'd put a halt on um, recruitment for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then luckily, as I sort of reached the end of my second year at the academy and was about to resign, luckily the Air Force opened up to service transfers and I put in my service transfer. So your Army cadetship was only a two-year it was supposed to be for my, you know, for my four-year four, degree, yeah, and then right, going yeah, sure. on to my career. So, did you finish your degree then yes. after leaving the army? Yeah, it was just a, one day I put on an Air Force uniform and went out and um, kept doing my degree. You yeah. and you ended up getting an honours degree. Yes, I did, and I was the only um, female in my year that graduated, and I was the only Air Force cadet that year as well. That must have been also in the 90s. Yes. So, when you're in the army, being yes. one of the few females in, in the force. Uh, there wasn't a huge um, female engineering presence, certainly. Um, we started out with two, uh, three females in my engineering class at the very start. Yep. Uh, one left at the end of second year and then the third girl, she's, she's actually still in now. Uh, so we, we, had, we, had a good, um, we had a good amount really for those days, sure. three out of I think th- uh, 30 or 40, but the attrition rate across the board for military engineers was quite high throughout yeah. first and second year. What anyway. actually is your qualification or your descriptor is aircraft engineer? Air, airfield engineer, airfield. that's right. What yes. does an airfield engineer do? Yeah, so I guess we, we all we, – Mostly we all start out with a civil engineering degree, but I do believe there, there there's a couple, one or two architects in our in our ranks and um, there may also be um, a Bachelor of Construction Management mm-hmm. um, that might qualify you. Um, once you get your undergraduate degree, you go on to do further training in airfield type roles. So you'll do air, airfield lighting, um, an airfield survey course, which is one of the more exciting aspects of what being an effort engineer is all about. Um, you also become adept at combat support roles um, and also infrastructure delivery roles. They're probably at the core of what we do. Right. You have, I believe, served in a, a range of combat support um, airfield engineer roles. Yes. You're based at Tyndall and Williamtown. Yes. What was that like and what did you have to do? So when I, when I graduated from the academy... Um, I was sent on my first posting up to RAF based Tyndall and that was right at the start of the new role that airfield engineers began to take in the Air Force that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So it was at the commencement of the rollout of base airfield engineers at our flying bases around Australia and 
fortunately and unfortunately, I was the first one to take that role in Tyndall, which which was interesting because it's such a remote location. You don't get a lot of backup from your peers. Uh, so I... I, I kind of um, had to make the job my own and I must admit the first few months I was sitting there going, how can I value add to this organisation and what can I do? But I was in a really lucky position whereby um, East Timor had sort of had recently wrapped up and there was a, a, f- a fair bit of residual infrastructure funding remaining for that. Yep. So without really knowing too much about what else I could be doing with my time, I undertook to spend a few million dollars fixing up infrastructure around Tyndall using direct funding from um, some residual East Timor funds, which now I know that's actually a really rare thing to be able to do as an Air Force officer because we, we would normally contract out our infrastructure delivery. So, so really appointment to Tyndall. Yeah. was being in the right place at the yeah, right time. Yeah, I was very lucky. And, you know, I had dozens of projects under my belt and none of them were complicated. They were all sort of low-risk projects. But, yeah, it sort of gave me an early taste for how to deliver a project. So what was the most challenging project oh, in that set? In that set? Oh, you know, there was there – was, it was all pretty mundane things that had been sitting Give me around one for example. years. One example would have been, um, oh, you know, carports for hospital um, hospital vehicles at the medical centre, um, FOD reduction measures. You know, simple things like we put cattle grids into the roads that were trafficked on by seventy five squadron very regularly, so that. Those so that staff didn't have to halt their vehicle and all climb out and do a check of their tyres to make sure they didn't have any rocks and things in their tyres. So that, because you can't take those, you have to do a check for those sure. before you go onto an aircraft movement surface. So it was quite a simple fix, but it, it, it saved a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Yeah. So, you moved from Tyndall to Williamtown, is that the way it went? Yeah, or? so we moved from Tyndall to Williamtown just for a short period. Um, it was only That was only a six-month posting as a bit of a respite between remote locations because after that we went to the Canadian equivalent of Tyndall, um, which was a Canadian Air Force base called Cold Lake, which was as isolated as Tyndall in Canadian terms, but the complete opposite in weather extremities. What's the Air Force saying to you? They're always sending you to these (laughs) isolated venues. Oh, I do believe we were putting, my husband and I, we were putting our hands up because we we just like (laughs) an adventure. When when did you meet? We met. You um, and Grant. Yeah, so we met when he was a third year Air Force cadet at the academy and I had just started first year. How long after that meeting did you marry? Uh, so after we met, we had that year together, but then we did long distance for three years while he went off and did his pilot training. And then we went to Tyndall in um, 2002 and mm. we married uh, that year. That's something, and I don't necessarily want to explore it now, but that's mm. something that a lot of people listening don't really fully understand, that if two people who are both in the RAAF marry, mm. that there's going to be a lot of time when you're apart because you're posted to different areas. Yes. Is that still the case? Yes. I mean, um, with the new total workforce model that has been rolled out across the ADF, I'm really happy to say that flexibility has been incorporated into right. a lot of posting decisions. But at the end of the day, 
every posting will depend on what your role, what your specific role is and what you need to do next. And it's always a decision about whose career will take priority, who will take a back seat. Is it a possibility to get a co-located posting? And if it's not, you have to make a decision about whether or not uh, you you stay in or you, you take that posting and you go unaccompanied or can you do it remotely? Luckily with COVID, we've learnt that we can do postings a bit more remotely and hopefully that will only improve the flexibility for other yeah. members moving forward. If that's a benefit of COVID, fair enough. But There's <laughs> got to be some silver yeah. lining. <laughs> there has to be some yes. silver lining. Tell us about the Airborne Early Warning and Coastal Systems that you're involved yeah, with. Yeah, that was a, that was a short posting for me um, because I did that when I got back from uh, that Canadian posting and um, I was pregnant with our first child at that stage. So I did a short, a short posting there. Um, luckily... I had, yeah, that was for the Wedgetail aircraft, Mm -hmm. which was being introduced into service at the time. And I came in at the tail end of that facilities build. So when I arrived, I was mostly managing defect issues with the facilities that were there because anytime you build a facility, it's accompanied by a 12-month defect liability period where the contractors that did the construction are still responsible to fix issues. Um, And so, yeah, that that was probably the crux of what I was doing at that stage was just um, managing those. And I think the only thing we were still delivering at that stage were the maintenance stands, like the mm. scaffolding that sure. the maintainers used to get up and around the outside of the aircraft. Louise, you've mentioned having been posted to Canada. Yes. Does that mean you were posted twice? Because I believe you took a sabbatical with the Canadian Armed Forces. It, yes. Was that a second job or is the first? Uh, is it the same? Yeah. So um, the, the time that we spent in Cold Lake, um, my husband was the one that was posted over there. And then when I arrived, I took a job with the Canadian Armed Forces myself working on one of their multinational exercises, which is called um, Exercise Maple Flag. And I took on a project support role there, um, which was eye-opening because it was an unclassified exercise involving lots and lots of um, European nations that Australia doesn't necessarily interact with. So it gave me a real eye-opening experience of what it's like to work with those nations and also to see from the inside how the Canadian Armed Forces so operate. tell us about how it operates. Tell us about the eye-opening experiences. Oh, it, was, it was just um, – it was fascinating to be involved in an exercise, firstly, a flying exercise because – as an effort engineer, I was I, my experiences in Australia had always been in the combat support role and never intricately involved in a flying exercise. Mm-hmm. So I got to see how the nations interacted together. I got to see how you might put together a you know a, a mission that involves you know dozens of aircraft and how that is briefed. Um, yeah, it was just um, probably from the cultural point of view, it was the most most interesting. So your your skill set as an airfield engineer, is that applicable in this (laughs) exercise maple flag? Yeah, so I think as an engineer, at the core of what you do, you see problems and you fix them. So while I wasn't dealing with airfield or infrastructure issues on exercise maple flag, you know, I was certainly able to find issues in the way the exercise was run and figure out how to fix them. So for instance, one of the one of the biggest issues when it comes to such a multinational exercise is comms and I could see that comms was falling down. So um, I put my, you know, um, engineer's hat on even though I wasn't employed as an engineer yep. and designed a database uh, that all the nations could input details into that enabled us to then set up 
um, more streamlined comms with with their staff. Mm. I was under the impression, correct me if I'm wrong, that a, a commercial international pilot, that all of the airports across the planet, you've got to be able to speak English. Yes. English is the accepted standard. This is not the case within oh, the Oh, it, it was, but a lot of these nations, English is their second language. Um, and you've also got totally different cultural approaches to um, what what timings might be. So you might have some nations that are a bit more relaxed about what time they need to be somewhere or if they're being asked to provide information, they might be a bit bit lax about that. I understand. Um, yeah. I understand. Your children must either love or hate you given that you get a problem and you know how to solve it yeah. as an engineer. So yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. you can see you as a very efficient <laughs> mum. Um, you become acting wing commander in 2018. Uh, why? Act, what was the reason for being an acting wing commander and how did that come about? Yeah, so the Air Force engineer um, Airfoot engineers, we've been deployed on Middle East operations for many years. Uh, and at the time that I was uh, asked to deploy over there, we were filling oh, – there was no squadron leader positions, which is the rank I am now. Yep. And the position that we were being asked to fill, among others, but for my rank level, we were being asked to fill the chief engineer role for the, for the Middle East, which required the act, the rank of wing commander. So as long as you're a, um, you know, a fairly senior squadron leader that um, who reports well, uh, acting rank for the next level up would be considered for a deployment such Fair as that. And that involved Operation Accordion? Yes. Yeah, so Are you able to talk about Operation yes, Accordion? Yes, so Operation Accordion is our is our effort in the Middle East. Um, we we were based in the UAE. Um, we have we had at the time we have we had two bases in the UAE, plus I had staff on Operation Okra in Iraq and Operation High Road in Afghanistan. Uh, so I had uh, four project teams spread across the Middle East in those in those countries. Um, I had uh, about 24 people reporting to me, plus I had a team, a couple of teams in the UAE. So it was very, very exciting, exciting role. Where, where was your husband, Grant, at this time? So he, he had just finished command of 77 squadron at the time and he went straight into full-time dad mode so he took long service leave uh, for the duration of my deployment which okay. um, yeah was a win-win okay. for well, th- everybody. This is about you rather than yeah. Grant. So we'll talk to Grant some other time. Yeah. Um, while you're in the Middle East I mean you were in the thick of it. Yeah yeah. What was that like? Oh it was it was the really it was a it was a fantastic experience. I it was a lot of hard work um, but the payoff was just instant and you know I've, I've often talked about um, the facilities delivery process in Australia versus when you're in operations yes so when you identify a facilities requirement in Australia it can take five to ten years to see the facility be built because there's a lot of design that goes into it there's a lot of justification and financial accountability and government approvals mm-hmm. that you have to step through and then the, and then the delivery phase can take a while too you know the actual construction but over in the middle east if you see something that needs to be done and it's urgent enough you can be turning sod in 30 days if you need to depending on the complexity of the project so just to be able to make such quick changes was Oh, you know, a fantastic experience for an engineer. And also a good experience for you now in the, your current role back here in Australia. Yes, yes. So um, my current role is with JSF Branch and, and yeah, I think um, at the time it was signed off, it's, it's the biggest, it was the biggest infrastructure um, mm. project undertaken by Defence. Just as a 
brief anecdotal aside, my mm. father was also in the Air Force during World War II. Um, and he used to tell, when he was alive, tell me the story about the difference between the way Australians did things and the way Americans did things. And there was one example. He said when the Americans came out to Australia, one of the hangars, the doors weren't wide enough to put the plane in. So the Americans just took the hangar down. Yeah, right. Rebuilt it and put in bigger doors. So problem, solution. (laughs) I wish our bureaucracy could learn some of the same same examples. Well, you are now at the Joint Strike FICA branch at Air 6000 and you're the Air 6000 manager. What does that entail? Yeah, so I'm the facilities lead. So I guess whenever you've acquired, whenever the Air Force or really the Army or the Navy acquires a new capability such as a jet or a boat or a tank or or a major asset like that, um, you would have a acquisition project attached to it, uh, which is run out of CASG. And uh, what what we do is we we acquire all of the supporting infrastructure um, and and other elements um, such as weapons and support equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would that goes into back up that capability. So, um, in my job, I'm responsible for delivering the facilities that are required for the for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. This is the Lightning II, the yes. F-35A Lightning II. Uh, does your heart bleed when you look at the other defence forces and the money being spent on, say, the acquisition of French submarines and uh, you think, look at all that money, I wish we had some? I'm, yeah. I'm not really asking you to make no, a political No, no, but you know, we're, we're well, we've been well equipped to, to build what is required for the F-35, I think. And, you know, the, 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 the infrastructure project that has built, built these facilities is running right on budget. Mm. So we've, we've hit the nail on the head, I think. How do you... Well, how does the RAF match, all right, we want to buy more F-35As? Yeah. Fantastic fighter, wonderful. But you need pilots. So how does the your role or any role match we've got to have the right pilots to fly the planes we're getting yeah well i mean that that's been you know this has been a, a major project run for more than a decade with a lot of people smarter than me looking at uh things like how do we how do we get enough qualified pilots i think australia actually has more than 40 qualified pilots right now and we've only just achieved ioc for the f-35 at the end of last year which is the initial operating capability right. um and yeah they you know I, th- I was at um two operations conversion unit the other day that's where my office is and you know they've they've got their first uh, trainee pilots going through the first course with plans to ramp that up um, more and more in future so I think that plans on track yeah and uh, isn't the f18 this year being yes retired? so yes yeah, so what the stage we're up to now is um, there's no f18s operating out of Williamtown anymore right. so three squadron and 77 squadron have uh, have transitioned to F-35s. The only F-18 still flying at the moment up at RAF Base Tyndall and they're flown by 75 Squadron. Mm. That will cease at the end of this year when 75 Squadron also transitions onto the F-35. Tell us about Operation Falconer in 2003 because I believe in some way, shape or form that certainly helped your career. Uh, so I wasn't deployed on Operation Falconer. Um, so the main way that helped my career was my boss was deployed and I got to do his job for six months at Tyndall. Well, that certainly helped your yes, job. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that was an interesting experience. I was a um, second-year flying officer when my when my squadron leader deployed, so I got to take over operational services flight at the then 322 CSS, uh, the Combat Support Squadron, and I had 160 people working for me from all different um, all different 
fields and and specialisations and uh, I loved every minute of that and that's what showed me I think that um, yeah Air Force is a pretty good place to be if I can wind up with, yeah. <laughs> with this much responsibility after only a couple of years in the job. Well it's yeah well it's not more it's more than a couple of years but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Um, how do other personnel react when a person is promoted to a position and they've come from a discipline or a side of the RAAF that isn't compatible with yeah. theirs. For example, an airfield engineer and a pilot are two disparate yes. types of people. I Well, when I did that, you know, I've never been responsible for for air crew, but uh, when I when I stepped into my boss's role, I think what, what um, other specialisations want to see is that you're not you're not going to assume that you know anything about what they sure. what they do. So, um, you know, talking about leadership and also followership, it's more about listening and trusting your your subject matter experts and the people that have been placed into influential positions beneath you and and giving them that trust and and also having the intelligence to know what you don't know. That is a good descriptor for what is a leader so yeah. absolutely fantastic and the uh, the whole process of consultation becomes important oh too. definitely yeah. yeah yeah what would you say to a year 12 student who may be listening to you right now yes. considering a career why is a career in the defense a good career in particular the RAAF yeah I actually do speak to a lot of schools um, about this and I think the the, mili- the Defence Force is such an exciting place to be. You will never have a dull moment. You never know what's coming next. You don't want. It, it's not the place for you if you like mundane and, and stability. But if you want a job that um, will send you places that you can't even dream of, I think it's the place for you because you never know what's around the corner. You never know what capabilities are about to be stood up. You never know what your next posting is going to be. You never know where where you'll end up. If, if you had asked me as a year 12 student what I would be doing at the age of, you know, I'm in my early 40s now, what? I never would have dreamed. <laughs> I never would have dream, dreamt of the experience that, yeah. that I have had. When you mention RAAF to a person who's got nothing to do with the defence, they immediately think planes. Yes. Has it ever been in your deep buried in your back of your conscious I wish I could fly. No, no, no. I've been up for a couple of flights in an F-18 and uh, I'm always very happy when I get back on the ground. Um, as an airfield engineer. As an oh airfield engineer yeah. back on the runway, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, you know what, it's just never been something that I've been interested in. Having said that, I think most of the Air Force has had some sort of air crew aspirations yeah. over the years. If you're on a television show of What Do I Do uh, and – someone's blindfolded and trying to guess what you do, in one or two sentences, how would you describe your job? Oh, uh, it would be managing cutting-edge infrastructure delivery. Uh, it would be working with the best of the best in a, in a broad gamut of um, specialisations and, and I would also say it would be challenging, challenging yourself to just think outside the box and um, and focus on the greater good of what you're doing. Yeah. And I'm blindfolded. I know what she does. She's in the RAAF. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Louise, again, every time I talk to someone from the RAAF, I, I just get inspired and I, I look back and think, I wish all those years ago I'd, I'd actually joined the RAF like my father had done. But yeah. 
you are an inspiration. You have achieved so much in such a short space of time. And you are, I think, a good exemplar for what the Defence Force in Australia now is. Men and women of equality doing the same job, achieving the same outcome of excellence. So thank you for your time. Thank you. And thank you for being in the RWF. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.